The views expressed in this interview are those of the individuals and do not reflect the official policy or position of the U.S. government, the Department of Defense, the U.S. Navy, or the Naval Postgraduate School. The Trident Room has been brought to you by the Naval Postgraduate School Alumni Association and Foundation. For questions, comments, and suggestions, please email us at tridentroompodcasthost at nps.edu and find us online at nps.edu slash tridentroompodcast. Welcome to the Trident Room, brewer of stout conversation, unfiltered and on tap. In today's podcast, NPS student Joe Novak sits down and has a drink with oceanographer Mara Orskanen. So reading or looking at your bio, mm-hmm. I was sure you grew up near the ocean, um, meaning your, your body of work. Right. Um, but so you did undergrad in Minnesota. I did. You did grad school in Illinois. Um, Illinois. But then you go to the East Coast, at least, with MIT. For sure. Okay. But I was born in Santa Cruz, and so oh, you Monterey were. Bay okay. is sort of in my blood. Okay. Um, my earliest memories are sitting on the beach in northern Monterey Bay area, looking at waves and playing with kelp and driftwood and things like that. So it was definitely sort of in my blood from a very young age that the ocean was an important part of my life. Mm-hmm. But then I grew up really in Colorado, so mm-hmm. kind of stepped away from the ocean for several years. Um, and in doing that, you know, sort of drifted away, really enjoyed physics and science and outdoors and math and everything during my early years. But it was in high school that I really discovered what physics was, mm-hmm. really enjoyed physics, decided I wanted to do that for my undergraduate degree. Was sure, 100% sure as a teenager can be that that was what my life was going to be. Got to college, really loved it. And then my senior year came around and I had to start thinking about what I wanted to do when I grew up. And that was a little scary. So I took lots of different classes in other science fields, including geology. Really loved the descriptive observational nature of it. And so decided to pursue a PhD in geology. Okay. So I went to University of Illinois in 2006 to start a PhD in what I thought I really wanted to do, which was looking at high-pressure mineral physics and looking at how minerals behave sort of at very high pressures. Hated it. So within the first few months, I hated it. How come? I had to hand polish little crystals down to 40 microns by 60 microns by 10 microns, and then by hand under a microscope, attach it to a fiber optic cable so that I could look at the optical properties of this mineral. It was tedious. It was not as glamorous as it sounded in papers. Okay. So very much not um, something that I enjoyed in terms of the observational component. Um, So I I met a professor there who really uh, sort of opened my eyes to research and what research can do. And she was doing fluid mechanics of volcanoes at the time. And so I changed my research to look at volcanoes and Mount St. Helens in particular. Really enjoyed fluid mechanics, took every fluid mechanics class I could do, um, and then ended up deciding about a year from finishing my PhD that it wasn't really something I was passionate about. A year out? Yes. Oh, wow. So I was five years into a program, really getting ready to defend, and kind of had this, again, awakening that you have to actually find a job, Mara, and go out into the real world and do something with your life, not just stay in school forever. And I didn't really want to be a volcanologist. 
And so, you know, I was sitting with my husband on the beach, looking at the waves in Puerto Rico, realizing, oh my gosh, there's a lot of really cool physics here. There's a lot of water moving around, there's fluid mechanics, sands moving everywhere. And I had this sort of epiphany, oh my gosh, I bet people study this. And so went ahead and looked into oceanography programs. We at that time decided to start a family too. And so I was pregnant with my first child while searching for new PhD programs to start and came upon the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution and MIT Joint Program in Oceanography where I found a great advisor who immediately understood doing grad school with children because he had done the same thing when he went through grad school. And he studied beach dynamics, looking at waves and how waves impact the coast. And I said, aha, bingo. And so dropped everything from my first PhD attempt and jumped into a brand new PhD with a six-month-old and started a new journey. So all in all, to get your PhD, you did about five years initially, and then how much more after that? It was about a decade. A so decade. I, I graduated college in 2006 and graduated from MIT in 2015. What, from your first PhD, mm -hmm. I don't want to say attempt because you, you were doing it, but <laughs> right. from your first PhD, what did you use on your second and what are you using now? Well, I think learning the um, observational skills, I took a couple of classes, sort of my last year of undergrad and continued into graduate school, learning really how to use my power of observation. So when I go into an environmental setting, learning to pick out what are important features that are going on, what are the critical trends, what is the water doing, what is the sand doing, noticing the patterns, noticing any sort of shape to the sand or any sort of shape to the water surface and using that. Of course, when I was doing the geology, it was more with rocks and looking at trying to interpret what rocks would would be resulting from what sort of environmental scenario. Now I'm just doing that in real time. And it's still, I use that in terms of thinking about the longer time scales and what we see from a more geologic perspective, how that plays out into sort of the day-to-day -day going to the beach time scales where you see waves hitting the, the beach itself. So speaking of uh, oceanography, what are what are the different branches? Could you give us kind of the elevator speech and overview of oceanography? <laughs> yes, oceanography. When I tell people I'm an oceanographer, almost, you know, I would say 90% of them would say, oh, you study whales and dolphins? <laughs> of course, yeah. And so um, I would say first off the bat that from oceanography, just as a very general standpoint, there are many different divisions. Generally, you would classify this into biological oceanography, of which marine biology might be a part of this. There's chemical oceanography, which looks at how different trace elements and or temperature and salinity move around the ocean. There's physical oceanography, which also looks a little bit at some of that salinity and temperature, but also deals with currents and fluid dynamics. There's also um, ocean policy, which is, again, something where it's sort of starting to overlap into the more, you know, political side of 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 science. Um, and so I think in general, you, if you are interested in anything related to the ocean, regardless of what your aptitude is, you could find a program that would match that. Of the true sort of hard science uh, oceanography programs, you typically see physical oceanography, 
chemical oceanography and biological oceanography, ocean engineering, also another subset, very technical. So there's a lot of different varieties um, and people studying all sorts of different things. Well, if there was one department at NPS, I would imagine it would be oceanography, maybe oceanography, uh, oceanography and shipbuilding. But uh, yeah. so, so tell me your in and amongst that, uh, those bevy of, of options, where's your focus? My focus is on coastal physical oceanography. So I, th I do things with the beach, essentially, is when I tell, you know, my mom, for example, what I do is I work with the beach and I look at how waves move sand around on the beach, what happens to the beach after storms go through. Here in California and since being at NPS, I've studied uh, estuary systems in California, and these are systems such as the Carmel River State Beach, which... I'm sorry, I'm, which beach? Carmel River State Beach. I, I know it by another name. Do you? Yes. <laughs> what name is that? So the Mara. Yeah. State Beach, can you tell us a little bit about yeah. that? Mara Beach Carmel. Mara Beach Google Carmel, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So this is a beach in Carmel that undergoes this rapid seasonal migration when we go from dry season to wet season. Think late fall. Last year it happened anomalously early on, over Thanksgiving, and it was a rush for me to get out there and try and get instruments in the water on time and measure things. Um, and I look at these estuarine systems, of which there are over 200 in the state of California. So this is a small system that you may see, and you may think this is not a big net effect on the ocean. But if you look at the compound effect from north, you know, from north to south in California, it actually integrates to a lot of freshwater input. And it's a huge seasonal pulse that is sort of difficult to quantify as to where the nutrients from the river are going, where the freshwater is going. In California, there are a lot of sensitive species, including steelhead trout, that rely on these rivers that temporarily open and close, that use these rivers for, for you know, breeding and such activities. But what I'm interested in about these rivers is the physical processes. So I look at how, when the river starts to flow and water starts to build up in the lagoon, how is that opening going to be established in the river? And how quickly does it change and why? And ultimately, when it closes in the dry season, when does that happen, how and why? Turns out there's a lot of fluid mechanics involved with that. Fluid mechanics are driving a lot of where the sand is going. And where the sand is going is ultimately what you see with your eyes when you go down to the beach. And how did that name arrive at <laughs> Carmel uh, State Beach? That is a really big mystery. I think Google was following me and noting that I went there nearly daily my first year at NPS. But actually, I think what happened was um, uh, my husband named a pin at the parking lot and called it Mara Beach Carmel because I kept telling him, meet me at the beach. And he kept getting lost, and so he said, I need to put a pin there. So I know when my wife tells me to show up at the beach, I know where that parking lot is. And I didn't know that Google can make things public like that, but apparently <laughs> it did. And now it has 45 reviews, and it's noted as a very kid-friendly beach. So but be careful of the waves. Be careful of the waves. <laughs> yeah, that's, they could be dangerous there. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, that, that's a funny anecdote. And yes. it's interesting to see that your name, Dr. Mara Oriskanen, is uh, the Mara part of it got onto the state beach that's there. Right. So well done. Yes. Um, so so that's uh, you talked. You told us a little bit about it, your interest. Now tell me how does that relate to the Navy, to the operational Navy? Why is why is uh, a surface warfare officer interested in what you're doing? Right. So um, typically, I would say 
you think of beach landings and the most famous of which being things like D-Day as being sort of a critical point between ocean and land. And this is something that may not necessarily happen to the magnitude that D-Day happened at. But nowadays we think of special forces and remote access from land to sea or sea to land. And ultimately, when you have forces in the water, any kind of amphibious operation or, or amphibious landing on a beach, you're dealing with waves, you're dealing with sand, you're dealing with the beach, and those tend to be the most environmentally challenging areas. <clears throat> I would say that when, when people understand the environment, they don't care about what I do, but it's when big waves affect uh, operations or when winds or when storms come through, storm surge, et cetera, from hurricanes, that people are like, well, wait, why did that happen? Why, why did, why did I get stuck in the beach on the sand? Why did the waves tumble me way more when I was trying to approach this beach as opposed to a different beach? And so ultimately from an operational standpoint, we sort of look at beaches as points of, of, of entry to whatever coastline you're around. So uh, it turns out, you know, bar-built estuaries such as Carmel River State Beach are common throughout Mediterranean climates. And so you can think about these in parts of Africa, parts of uh, you know Portugal and the west coast of Europe, uh, as well as Australia and other places that go through this transition from wet season to dry season. So this isn't just a local Carmel, very specific worrying about beach landings at Carmel, but more of a global perspective of looking at how waves and storms impact beaches and ultimately sort of coastal points of entry. So who are some of your sponsors, some of your research sponsors? Hmm, good questions. Right now I have um, funding through Office of Naval Research a little bit. Um, I have been working to get funding through the National Science Foundation, but that has been challenging. Um, as a junior scientist and just in general at NSF, success rates for proposals are dismal, less than 10%. And so you spend all this time writing a proposal, and it's quite challenging. I've had funding through the NPS Naval Research Program and through the Cruiser Program on campus, both of which have been really instrumental in helping me set up my uh, research program. I've only been here for three and a half years, and so I'm still actively pursuing uh, funding opportunities. I have collaborations down at NIWIC Pacific looking at sort of these estuarine systems from, from you know, a north to south California perspective. Um, Just as a side note, it sounds like a lot of what you work on is, is relevant to the what's going on with the Chinese and their island building. Um, is it? <laughs> Um, somewhat. I, I think, yeah, that, that there, there's definitely overlaps in terms of the ultimate processes. I have not been following that as diligently as perhaps I should now that I'm at NPS. But one of the things that I would say is that even though that may be a local action in terms of building up an island and creating new land, it's going to affect the ocean circulation within the whole sea, at least from a waves perspective. It will create all sorts of diffraction patterns, especially if these islands are, you know, spaced at certain intervals and things like that. So um, certainly of interest regionally, maybe not as, you know, you know, uh, as, as you know, it may not be a huge effect, but you should be, you will be able to see the overall um, 
the overall impact of, of building these islands. As far as the sediment goes and where the sand and beach are going, for sure. I mean, that's definitely something that, I mean, if you place a big pile of sand in the ocean, how long is it going to stay there? That's a good question. That's a great problem I don't know the answer to. It's fascinating. So tell me about uh, one of your releases, it sounds like, is flying. Yes. Why is that? Why, why do you enjoy flying? Um, I started flying when I was 16. Mm -hmm. My parents tricked me into a flight lesson the day after my birthday, and I was so stubborn and sullen as a classic 16-year-old that I didn't even want to get out of the car <laughs> until the flight instructor came and tapped on the window and said, do you want a flight lesson or not? And I finally woke up and... I was very fortunate. My my parents, you know, we had moved to Seattle when I was in high school and they had asked me, well, do you want flight lessons or would you rather go to a private school? And for me, that was a hands down decision. I was very fortunate that we were able to afford such a such a luxurious hobby because it certainly wasn't cheap. But flying, I mean, from then I went on to, you know, do all sorts of different types of flying. Um, um, my My first flight exam when I was 17, getting my private license was terrifying because the examiner then told me congratulations you passed and I want you to know you're now one of the most dangerous pilots out there because you're so young and you're so junior so go off and get every rating you can and so I did and got tailwheel and yeah. instrument and commercial and seaplane and things like this so no flying lots wow. of different things glider I instructed gliders for a long time um, a long time, a couple of years, but you know, so for me, it's just always been that release where I can maybe turn my brain off from thinking about the physics and just worry about the operational aspect and enjoying the sort of natural beauty around me. So I flew up until I was almost nine months pregnant with my son and then the stick didn't have full range <laughs> of motion. So I, I took a little hiatus. So it's great now that my kids are older that I can get them in the cockpit with me and they've both had their first introductory flight lessons and have bragged to their classmates that they are that they know how to fly an airplane too so it's awesome it's definitely fun on Google Scholar you have on the order of 20 uh, published papers or so which uh, which would you say is your favorite which is your least favorite which turned out to <laughs> be wrong or has changed over the years uh, the understanding has changed yeah my favorite paper was a paper in which I, uh, it was part of my PhD, but it took several years to get published. And so it actually ended up getting published while it was here at NPS. But it was looking at tidal reflection on uh, Martha's Vineyard, which is an island off the south coast of Massachusetts, where I did my PhD work. And I was so excited by this because it was during my sort of last year of PhD where I recognized the similarity between this hydrodynamic system, how water's moving through this system, and an electrical circuit. And I said, oh my gosh, this is so cool. I can model this system based off of something called a lumped element model. And I came to my advisor, I was so excited, I handed him this manuscript, and he said, what the heck is this? This is, you know, this is random. And it took months to battle through this with him to say, no, no, I'm right, I can do this. Well, then when we went to publish it, it was the same battle that it was so hard. It went through so many rounds of review, finally got accepted. 
and it ended up making the cover of the journal, which wow. was which was Fantastic. a little feather in my cap, shall we say. But it was something that I, I enjoy about you know my physical career here and looking at physics from many different standpoints. It's really um, interesting to see the similarities between systems that have nothing to do with each other, such as electrical circuits and oceanography, and yet they behave in a mathematically similar way. And so seeing that connection is is that that brings a lot of enjoyment to me. Nature is fascinating, absolutely. It's and one way I've noticed on a lot of your papers that you've been um, studying nature is uh, with artificial intelligence, uh, neural networks. Could you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. Um, I started doing that a couple years ago. This was, again, that NRP project that I had funded. And this was actually in collaboration with the Coast Guard. This was actually, I think, the first NPS NRP Coast Guard co-funded with the Marine Corps project. And we were looking at trying to come up with an automated way for detecting when my river system is open. I have, like I mentioned earlier, there were there are over you know 200 different rivers in California that are open and closed. If I have to march out to every single one to tell whether the river's open, that's going to take a lot of time and be quite a headache because some of them are very remote, very hard to access, very hard to observe. So I was thinking, well, heck, if I can fly with an airplane or with a drone and take a lot of aerial imagery, <clears throat> can I use that imagery to establish? patterns in what open versus closed look like. And so this was a project in collaboration with my husband, who's in the computer science department here, and where we looked at trying to use convolutional neural networks to detect different landscapes in nearshore and beach environments. And so this is thinking like rocky coastline, beach, coastal waterway, cliff, different characteristics like this, and then use that to sort of provide a more automated way to detect, oh yes, you have an opening or something that's very different. Turns out that's very challenging to get something that um, actually performs well. The, the neural networks had very high accuracy, but in terms of actually using it and to, to describe open versus closed or get the physics involved, that's still, we're still working on that part. Fantastic. Is there a big role for industry in the commercial sector in your field? Actually, I am in the process of setting up what's called a CRADA, which is an mm -hmm. agreement between uh, industry and NPS. And this is something with GE Aviation that I have been working with. Um, so from the technical component, we have been working to establish a um, automated method for detecting both topography and bathymetry at the beach. They have the flight computer, I have the drone and the beach expertise, and so it's this sort of natural fit where they've been looking for applications to test their flight computer in terms of capabilities, and I'm always looking for technological like advancements for sensing things at the beach that make my life easier so I don't, again, have to walk miles on the sand to go figure out where things are and map stuff. Um, so from that perspective, that's, that's one example of sort of industry getting involved is through the technology component in terms of sensor development and sensing of the environment. Um, from a different standpoint, I do, I did, I worked for a couple years as a consultant for an environmental consulting firm where we worked more with 
local governments and private entities to understand essentially risks of sea level rise or impacts of waves and tides on coastal infrastructure. Um, and so one of the projects I worked on there was looking at sea level readiness for the city of Boston when I was living in Massachusetts and looking at sort of how prepared are cities like this for you know, inundation events and what happens with extreme events as sea level rise takes over. So how prepared are we? <laughs> Depends on where you are. Um, nowadays, I would I would say as the optimist in me is, is encouraged by city planners who are starting to build major buildings such as hospitals and actually think about things like sea level rise. And so I know in Boston, they're requiring all sorts of, you know, generators and other equipment and infrastructure components to buildings to be up a level. So not in the basement, but be prepared for huge surge events so that such that the whole building is is able to withstand elevated uh, water levels without damaging and completely you know breaking the entire building um, so from a base perspective I would say you know it, it's something that people are thinking about and uh, you know I'm not entirely the expert here in terms of base readiness for sea level rise so you mentioned some of the challenges um, involved in your work and one of the challenges I'm curious about is I mean it's not sexy or anything but the, the administrative challenge so meaning that you know you're setting up this CRADA you're navigating all the administrative bureaucracy of doing something like flying a drone over a state park or or other types of airspace and you have to deal with mm, NPS naval rules, uh, naval aviation rules, uh, state and federal rules, FCC, FAA, et cetera, et cetera. And I could just imagine that it, it, it weighs one down. Um, I found in, in my life the administrative aspects of a lot of my work is soul-sucking, um, <laughs> for lack of a better way of referring to it. Um, so how do you power through that? Do you have a method? Do you have some tactics that we can take away from you to help us you know, do the good work we want to do while navigating this this minefield of administration. Boy, I wish I had the answer to that <laughs> because I think we're all looking for the way to streamline the administrative side. I will say, um, you know, this is definitely, I, I, I echo what you say in terms of the soul-sucking part. When I arrived at NPS and I said to one of my colleagues that I wanted to fly a drone, he looked at me like I'm crazy and shook his head. <laughs> I wouldn't do that if I were you. And at the time when I was there, there was absolutely no understanding on campus as to really what the actual protocol was for flying a drone. And, you know, we, we went through this, I mean, a lot of turns around just even within the FAA itself, who's allowed to fly drones over the past five to ten years, it's really changed. Um, and, you know, who, who has permission not only to fly a drone in civilian airspace, but then you have restricted airspace and all sorts of things. So that's a great example. Um, I would say that now at NPS, one of the things that has resulted from a lot of this is that the research department has a web page for the drone policies and procedures that you need to follow in order to, to fly a drone through NPS. And so that's been something positive that has resulted from the headache of the unknown administrative side. 
And I've helped set that up with with folks in the research department, just going through all of the different processes and trying to figure out what types of waivers and approvals do we need to get, both from the Navy side, from the NPS side, from the civilian side. And just to give you an idea, we had to go through the Navy Buke training for being able to fly drones for the Navy, which is similar to what, what I think uh, officers have to do in order to fly drones for the Navy. Just levels one and two, which sounds like nothing, but it ended up being about 20 hours worth of training online on proper procedures for how to operate a drone and what types of airspace you're allowed to fly in and et cetera, et cetera. Luckily, as I'm already a pilot, a lot of that was second nature, so it made that substantially easier for me to get through it. And then also you have to go through, when I, sh- when I stepped on campus, there, you know, we were just getting to the point where instead of having to send every single drone down to Nav Air to get a flight certification, now we could sort of streamline and say for commercial off-the-shelf drones, for make and model, they'll give sort of a, 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 a blanket waiver for any make and model of a specific drone. Well, then, of course, about a year and a half ago, I believe, we went through the cybersecurity ban with the DOD-wide ban on all essentially Chinese-made drones, which, of course, a lot of my fleet, in fact, all of my fleet were non-U.S.-made drones. And as such, they were grounded. And so my waivers, you know, when they ran out, they ran out. That happened the end of January this year. And so I've been trying to establish a list of U.S.-made drones where essentially it is a cybersecurity, you know, awareness issue. Of course, for my application flying over the beach, maybe if China knows about high-resolution beach images, it's not a big deal. <clears throat> but then you run into instances where if you were flying over, you know, you know, some sort of uh, more sensitive area, restricted airspace, et cetera, you could understand why that would be a, a big concern. And so I'm in the process of trying to get yet another drone to add to this fleet of now grounded drones so that I can continue my research. But again, I'm looking at at least another probably six months before I'm able to fly it. Um, And so it's just all this data wasted that I'm not collecting because of A, COVID, and B, the bureaucracy of just trying to get approval for this. Right. Um, And then just on the civilian side, if you were to fly a drone over something like a state park, as you mentioned, you need to go through all the environmental permitting, which here involves talking to the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary, getting a a sanctuary permit if you want to fly over their airspace, which is essentially the nearshore water ocean regions. I have to get a permit from state parks to fly over their airspace, over their grounds. So when you fly drones and you see people flying drones at the beach, technically that's not allowed. So I carry my permit on me specifically so that I can show whatever ranger shows up or lifeguard shows up that yes, I am actually permitted to fly here. And then you have to also go through sometimes uh, fish and wildlife to ensure that you're not going to be disrupting sensitive species in particular. Waterfowl is a big one. The sanctuary really cares about marine mammals. And so again, you have to show that your operations are not going to be too sensitive to 
uh, environmental sensitive species um, and whatnot. And so just, you know, between all of that, I have, you know, my FAA Part 107 license, which covers me from the civilian perspective. I have my Navy training, of which I had to go and get a flight physical for. No. And pass. No. Yes, a flight <laughs> physical, only really for the eyes, but it was still an, okay. a full eye exam to make sure I'm not colorblind for flying my $1,000 drone on the beach. Um, so it, it's, you know, you, you look at that in terms of the bureaucracy and you understand the safety concerns and making sure that everybody's qualified, but then you also look at it as a somewhat ridiculous requirement That's for flying <laughs> drones. Yeah, yeah, well, good on you for, for yeah. powering through that and thank you for doing that. Yeah. Um, and just curious, from, from conception to your first flight, meaning that you, you knew you needed a drone and let's say you even knew the type of drone, till your first flight, how long was that? Well, actually, it was interesting because when I showed up, it was less restrictive since nobody really knew the proper channels. NPS was pretty much okay as long as we had the blanket waiver for make and model with flying as long as, of course, I had the environmental permitting and, and things like that. When it became complicated was when the Navy started recognizing that we probably had to care about Navy operations in FAA airspace. And so that started to become complicated and that grounded me for probably six months while I figured out how to get um, a cooperative agreement between FAA and DOD um, for, for that. And then of course with the cyber bans that have been sort of rolling out continuously over the last two years, there have been intermittent gaps between being able to fly and having waivers approved for those makes and models. We were successful the first year of me having my drones in getting, you know, the waivers for the cyber uh, security issues for, for non-U.S. made drones. And of course, this is this year where we were told we're not going to get those renewed and then have to switch to U.S. made drones. So all in all, again, in three and a half years, I have flown, I, I've had periods of six months where I haven't been able to fly. Mm -hmm. It's definitely been a more challenging avenue to pursue. But once it, you know, again, once you get all your I's dotted and your T's crossed, it's it's actually fairly seamless in terms of oh, operations good. once it's established. Good. <laughs> it's good. just yeah. making sure you have all those I's dotted and T's crossed. Gotcha. So. Okay, good. Um, just curious, do you do any underwater drones? I don't right now. Um, it, 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 in the near shore environment, the currents are so strong, the waves are so dynamic that any kind of underwater drone or underwater vehicle really has a difficult time operating and surviving. So a lot of what I've been trying to get into is more the remote sensing from the air concept, looking at you know the, the drone world as carrying my camera platforms that I can... Um, sense with essentially. Can you see a operational use of uh, kind of a live operational use of a of a drone? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> so uh, a lot of um, I think uh, I have been told I have not spoken with directly, but I've heard that a lot of Marine Special Forces actually use similar techniques to what I do with my drone to gauge what is the overall shape of the beach? Has it changed recently? They're using th techniques called photogrammetry to try and establish how high the beach is and what the overall shape of the environment is. Um, I'm hoping with if, if this CRADA goes through and this, this big proposal that I've submitted goes through, 
to establish a system that would be essentially you fly it live and get live feeds for bathymetry and topography. But again, that's that's a ways out in terms of actually having that device in hand. But again, both from a military operational standpoint, but also a civilian post-disaster standpoint, I think something like that would be extremely useful. You touched on it a little bit already, but what, in, in the world of oceanography, what keeps you up at night? What keeps me up at night? <laughs> right now, it's the funding issue that really okay. ultimately keeps me up at night. And I'll be honest with you, um, the other thing is is interacting with and talking to policymakers and helping them understand that physics really is not a political thing to believe or not to believe. It is physics. And so the physics will do what the physics will do. And we can argue, you know, across party lines, whether or not it's right or not, but ultimately truth will prevail and physics will happen. So trying to get that level of awareness and understanding that, hey, with things like sea level rise and increasing storm intensity, you know, we don't want to wait for another Hurricane Sandy or Hurricane Katrina to to pump a lot of funding into nearshore research because we know things like that are going to happen if we don't understand how to protect our infrastructure and how to protect, you know, people's lives close to the coast and when things like evacuations are necessary, then how can we possibly, you know, operate as scientists at, at places like NPS? You know, this is, it's connecting this policy level all the way down to the hardcore physics that I think is keeps me up at night and how to do that in the most efficient way. Great. If you could publish only one successful, realistic, achievable paper, uh, what would the title be? And uh, give us a rundown of the abstract. Oh my god, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that one's hard. I didn't read that one. Hmm. So I think if I, if I could publish only one successful, realistic, achievable paper in the next few years, it would be understanding sediment transport during breaching. And again, what I mean by breaching is going from an open to a closed state. This happens both on the West Coast at these estuaries, but also East Coast during hurricanes on, on barrier islands. How sand catastrophically fails to create a new channel through a beach is, you know, that's something that I've been working on now for years. So if I could, man, it would be great to get actual observations inside the breach while it's happening. Of course, in real life, the timing of such is, is really quite challenging. Um, I, I have started working with one of my USW students in a lab in the physics department with one of the physics faculty on looking at sort of more controlled environmental simulations of what happens during a breach. And so I'm optimistic that that's going to go lead to some sort of critical understanding of flow regimes as things are breaching and understanding of that. But I think that right now is one of the biggest unknowns in, in terms of the modeling and forecasting capabilities that we have is understanding when a beach is going to fail in such a catastrophic way. And that ultimately changes things like the hydrodynamics and storm surge and also, you know, just where water is going within whatever system it is that you're studying. So regardless of California, East Coast, West Coast, this is sort of a problem that's, that's classically misunderstood because we just don't have the understanding and the observations. Okay, so you are queen for a day. <laughs> uh, what would you change about the Navy, or if not the Navy, about, uh, let's say you're a supernat supernatural queen for the day, so you could change physics uh, or recreate the world how you'd like. 
in your field, mm -hmm. what would you change? Well, I don't think I need to worry about the physics so much. <laughs> okay. That's pretty fun and entertaining and, and keeps me busy, which I really enjoy. The thing that really drives me nuts is the fact that we're so funding limited doing our science. And so it drives me absolutely nuts that I don't that I have to spend more than 50% of my time right now searching for funding, writing up proposals, trying to secure the possibility so that maybe I get to go and do some cool stuff in the field. I would rather have all of my funds taken care of, be allowed to do the research I want to do, get the data I want to do so I can be there for the students. And that's just the simple matter. And I, I know that that's sort of a pipe dream in the sense, but if I were queen for a day, I would sort of provide unlimited funding to science. Well, absolutely. And, you know, on your website, you talk about uh, some STEM initiatives that you've volunteered, mm -hmm. that you've spent a lot of time uh, working with. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so the project that I have funded through the Office of Naval Research right now is called Junior Researchers, and it's essentially a program that was established a couple years ago to work directly with high school and middle school science teachers and engage their classes with real-time data collection. And so I've been taking students down to the beach to look at water quality, measuring salinity, measuring temperature, measure, measuring dissolved oxygen and salinity in Carmel River State Beach, talking to them about beach safety and dynamics and how physics moves all this sand around and how the environmental impacts and the environmental uh, you know, observations that they're making are sort of a result of the physical environment that's forcing the system talk about competing interests with infrastructure and people's homes getting flooded with natural systems that don't need to be maintained and are allowed to sort of breach and, and close naturally versus needing to come in and sort of help these systems stop flooding the local infrastructure and whatnot. And so it's, I try, you know, I try to engage these students not only from the physical understanding, but try and get them to realize that the physics is just sort of inherently ingrained in anything that they're seeing around them try and teach them a bit of that observation to look at around them to see what do they notice about the lagoon what do they notice about the sand how do they think they got the sand how do they think the sand got where it is and then ultimately competing forces should we let things be completely natural how do we balance that with people's homes getting flooded or or roads getting flooded and all of that have you had any particularly memorable students who uh, really surprised you or you saw the light bulb go off or they wrote to you a couple years later and said, hey, I'm, I'm pursuing this or that? Um, not specifically yet. I did have a young high school student as an intern. She was supposed to be doing an internship as part of the MAYAS program. And I had her come through and she really, you know, she told me she really likes STEM fields, but didn't really know what she wanted to do. So I let her shadow me and help out and do a little bit of research and at least get exposed to that. And now she's decided that she's really passionate about chemistry and chemical engineering and is going to go off and get her undergrad degree in that, which is pretty cool. Yeah, um, I, I recently gave a lecture at my undergrad. Of course, it was supposed to be live, but instead, of, instead it was via Zoom to a bunch of freshmen there who had you know, who again were in the class because they were interested in physics but didn't really know what you do with a physics degree. And so I gave this lecture and resulting from that had a couple of them email me really interested in internships. Fantastic. And so 
Um, I, I, you know, in terms of the whole STEM outreach and looking at and engaging students, I think it's absolutely critical, not only from a um, local perspective, but just in terms of trying to, to get access into schools you know, especially underprivileged schools, I think this is critical because if you don't know something's out there, how can you possibly know that career exists as an opportunity for you? And so a couple years ago, I had schools as far away as Manteca come to Carmel River State Beach for this lesson in how sand's moving around. And, you know, I really hope that some of them got a understanding that doing science is fun it's not something that is not un, not uh, you know not unobtainable it's something that you can do um, and enjoy doing it brings a lot of different disciplines together to do good science absolutely well absolutely and with your work uh, you can see how many yeah. how many different kind of pots you had to take from to, to make your stew yes um, so that's that's wonderful. I would say actually that the the biggest thing, not so much with the the younger students that I've been working with, but with my own students, I, they reach back to me every now and then from their current postings, that they say, "Oh my gosh, thank you so much for your class on you know near shore processes," or, "Boy, I learned so much and I use that all the time." And so that's very satisfying to hear that it's not just something intellectual that they've been doing, but that it's actually, you know, trying to get your, your brain to think about these processes and use your sort of critical thinking skills in your operational setting is kind of, it's a really positive thing to hear. Oh, absolutely. And that's essentially the whole point of NPS. Precisely. So that's that's perfect. So do we have any PhDs in oceanography here at NPS? We and do. Are you making them work for a decade? <laughs> no. In fact, so the oceanography department and the meteorology department here, I think, get about one student a year that comes Great. in to do their PhD. Um, this is, I think right now we have, I want to say, two active PhD students, and we have one international PhD student in oceanography. Um, and I may not have those numbers correct, but... okay. Um, and right now they, they come in after going through a master's program. Most of the time they come and they've done their master's at NPS, the, the same master's program that, you know, all of the what the METOC officers are doing, essentially. And they decide to come back for three years to do a very accelerated PhD. And so in three years, they're trying to match what civilian students do at NPS, uh, or not at NPS, but try to match what civilian ins institutions provide in five to six years, they're trying to cram everything into three. Mm -hmm. So um, very accelerated research, but it's still sort of the same concept of training those brains to think critically, to do sort of their own science as opposed to me telling them what to do, which happens often with a master's degree because there's simply not enough time for that level of critical thinking for a master's. So why NPS versus MIT, Stanford, Cornell, somewhere else? Um, NPS, you know, it's interesting. When I came back finally to California after years and years of being away, um, I was driving by NPS and I was still in grad school at the time. And I said, you know, man, if they could open up a job for me at NPS, that would be like perfect because I really, um, you know, A, I really liked the the sense of, of working with the military. Um, I see that as a, a critical point, um, connecting science to military operations. Um, I almost went into the ROTC myself, but was medically 
disqualified, shall we say, from flight programs and so chose not to go that route. So it's really a nice opportunity to come back and be able to work with officers and sort of help help them be better at their jobs so that they can go off and, and, and do them to the best of their ability. Um, and so NPS from that standpoint was perfect. It's also just a great opportunity to get involved with other aspects of campus and reach out across different departments and schools from a more DOD perspective, which I really enjoy just from the problem solving type you know, what types of problems come up in oceanography tend to be way more applications and operations driven, which I find interesting. Um, and so for that, that's definitely been a great fit from, you know, why NPS? And what's the one thing NPS students should take from their time here? Learn how to think critically. I think regardless of what your thesis topic is, your discipline is, whatever your department is, and whatever your future may lead to, hopefully your thesis is an opportunity for you to really learn how to tackle a hard problem of which there may not be an answer to, and know that that's something that you yourself can do, that you're learning these skills not just to memorize a bunch of facts and maybe keep a bunch of facts in your brain for a little while, but to really know that you're learning how to think about problems, I think is really the, the highlight of NPS. They're not doing a lot of the kind of scut work. I imagine they're not doing the TAing and what have you, so they can focus a little bit more. Yes. And it's, I imagine it's very operate, the, the work that the PhDs do is very operationally relevant. Is that about right? That's actually not necessarily that true. Um, I would argue that really the point of the PhD is not so much to gain the skill set for something operationally focused, but more to gain the intellectual capacity to think of problems outside the box that don't have solutions. And so really the focus here is to, you know, take someone who has shown, you know, academic aptitude and interest and teach them sort of those observational skills on, well, if I am handed an unknown problem, how would I go about solving it? I may not be necessarily an expert in all of the facets of it, but I know that I can use my brain to figure out these problems. And so actually our PhDs, and I should, I should point out, I've never personally advised a PhD in oceanography, but I've sat on several committees of PhDs. But these students are amazing. They go out and they usually go and either design their own field experiments, they're deploying instruments in the water, analyzing all of the data that comes from those instruments and trying to interpret what the environment is telling them. We have other PhDs who are doing numerical, more numerical focused PhDs who are literally setting up uh, numerical models to try and understand what's going on numerically that we see observationally. And in oceanography, there's this constant blend between observations and numerics where you're trying to gain sort of the the whole picture of what the environment is doing, but recognizing that there are limitations in how we can directly sense the environment and then also directly model the environment. So it's always this constant blend. In civilian institutions, you may try and do both for your PhD, but again, like you mentioned, it's a longer program, usually thrown in there with some TA and, and way more classes that um, PhD students have to come in and take at the beginning. The nice thing about the PhD students here is they've come in, they've taken all of their course requirements, and so really what they have to do is just refresh themselves on the general concepts of oceanography and then go through and take a qualifying exam and then start their own independent research. Is there anything you'd recommend NPS 
do better or differently for the PhD students? NPS being a graduate school for sure, but not necessarily PhD. You know, there's on the order of, uh, of 15 or so PhDs, as I understand it here at NPS. Is there something NPS can do more or further for the PhDs that they're not currently doing? Well, I think the biggest thing that NPS should do is try and solicit the Navy and Air Force and Army for why PhDs are critical for the fleet. And just to be honest, I mean, the, the level of critical thinking that you get while undertaking a PhD is, is not something that's easy to quantify. And so I can see from a management perspective why it would be difficult to send people for a three-year program. But again, having been through several different academic institutions, institutions myself, I've seen the transformation in my own brain. And I watch it with students as they come through and they really start to get overwhelmed with how complex the project is. And then slowly and surely they chip away at something and they come to this full understanding of whatever concept they've been studying for years. It's really transformative. It gives them a huge confidence boost that they are capable of doing a lot of these unknown problems. But also it just, you know, it, it sort of cements the sort of hard work that goes into solving some of these these problems, I would say. And you think it's important that officers have this as opposed to farming these types of problems out to civilians or contractors or what have you? I absolutely do. I think if you, if you were to look at just the oceanography component of the Navy, if you don't have the experts who have the technical understanding, but also the understanding of what goes into creating solutions for some of these unknown problems, it's going to be a challenge. What's the best investment in yourself that you've ever made? Best investment in myself was learning to fly. Um, Great, I think yeah. that that taught me several things just from a, well, you know, you're going to have to land the plane if you take it off, you know, from this type of believing in yourself and your capabilities, but it's also you know, learning that the practical application of something that you read about in books is, is as important as reading about it in the books, too. Um, and so I really like that, you know, sense of, you know, you, you really have to make sure you understand how the plane's working. You can read about the aerodynamics and understand about the fluid flow, and then you go and fly it, and you can see that sort of real-world action. It also, it's just helped me in terms of overall time management with an academic life, which is, sounds silly, but... Um, you know, when you are doing research, it is so easy to just keep going and not call it done when it's done. And so being able to say, okay, we're going to move on and stop beating a dead horse and, and, you know, not go down that rabbit hole anymore. We're going to move on and go to something new. I think that that helps with the flying mentality. What's your favorite uh, military aircraft? Military aircraft? I don't know. How about civilian? Civilian. What's your favorite civilian aircraft? My favorite civilian aircraft? I really like a Piper Super Cub, of which I've flown from Minnesota to Tennessee. It was a very long flight, going about maybe 80 miles an hour. <laughs> but it was super fun. Well done. Yeah. What advice would you give to your 23-year-old self? Take your time. You know, there's no rush. Even though you don't have the answers, just really sit and think about what it is you want to do with your life and your career. Life really is a journey. I know that sounds a little bit corny, but it really is the journey that you're living, not the destination. And so, you know, enjoy, enjoy the process of going through graduate school, you know, just relax a little bit from that standpoint. And how is your future self 10 years from now different from you currently? 
hopefully very good at the administrative side <laughs> so that it's streamlined. Um, but I think my future self hopefully is also tenured. That's a, that's my next mm. big hurdle in my career is sometime in the next few years, I'll have to go through this formal review. Um, and I, you know, I think getting through that will be really sort of a, a sense of accomplishment in terms of the academic career. So 10 years from now, I hope I'm also trying to still engage with students of all levels and you know really try and bring that stem into the classroom at all levels i'd really also like to engage more with you know navy leadership and in trying to describe why stem is so critical to what we do as both civilians and military officers. I think it's just critical that there's an appreciation for the technical aspects of our life, regardless of whether they're oceanographically focused or not. <laughs> Excellent. Fantastic. Well, hey, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for being on, and uh, I look forward to having you on the show again. Most welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Thanks for joining us in the Trident Room. This episode was recorded on June 20th, 2020. For more information about today's guests and topics, please visit the show notes. The Trident Room has been brought to you by the Naval Postgraduate School Alumni Association and Foundation. For questions, comments, and suggestions, please email us at tridentroompodcasthost at nps.edu and find us online at nps.edu backslash tridentroompodcast.com.